2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome
3: to Part Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Guess what, Mingo? What's that, Will? All right, so I was reading up this week on strange advantages that certain people have. You know, we're always trying to get a leg up on people uh-huh. we are super competitive, <laughs> as our listeners may know. But sure. it turns out that left-handed people have a pretty distinct advantage, like when it comes to one-on-one sports. So you take boxing, tennis, fencing, even pitching a baseball. If it involves taking aim at an opponent, lefties have a little bit of an edge. Huh. And if you look at professional sports, the numbers actually bear this out. For instance, back in 2017, one-third of Major League Baseball players were left-handed. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. As well as 20% of the top-ranking boxers and 20% of the top-ranking fencers. Meanwhile, it's a completely different story for the more team-oriented sports like basketball or football. Huh. So why do you think that is? Well, it ultimately comes down to how rare lefties are. It's estimated that only 10% of the people in the world are left-handed. That means that if you're a right-handed tennis player, for example, you've probably only ever gone up against other right-handed players. Uh-huh. And the same is true for left-handed players too, right? Like 90% of the world is right-handed, then left-handed players are also mostly squaring off with righties. This was something I really didn't think about. Right. So the result is that when a left-handed player goes up against the right-handed one, It's just another day at the office. Same old, same (laughs) old. But that's not the case for a right-handed player. The right-handers don't really know what to expect, and that makes it easier for them to be caught off guard. It makes sense. Like, when you think about it, playing baseball as a kid, if you saw a lefty throwing to you, like, it was... It just looked so strange. Right, right,
3: totally. It's almost like uh, when a boxer throws a mean left hook, you know, that old southpaw surprise. I I don't know if that's a real boxing term, but it it sounds like boxing to me.
4: Well, just like when you were a big boxer as a kid (laughs) and you faced a lefty. (laughs) But weirdly enough, some researchers think the main reason why left-handed trait is still around today is because it's always granted this element of surprise and combat. For example, there was a study in 2005 where researchers looked at the remains of primitive societies and made a breakdown of how many people were left-handed and how many were right-handed. And amazingly, they found that about 3% of the population was left-handed in the more peaceful societies. But a whopping 27% were left-handed in the more warlike societies. Yeah. (laughs) So in other words, think (laughs) twice. If you've ever challenged a left-handed boxer, historically speaking, it probably isn't going to go so well for you.
3: Well, I, I'm not sure I'd fare that much better against right-handed boxers yeah, either, but pretty thank safe bet. Yeah. thank
4: you for the tip. <laughs> well, there's plenty more where that came from because today's show is all about the unusual advantages that everyday people enjoy, from the high social standing of tall people to the surprising success rate behind your lucky rabbit's foot. There's all sorts of ways to get the upper hand in life, even if you aren't left-handed. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of that soundproof glass, working the soundboard with his left hand today. Just his left hand. Impressed. <laughs> that is our brilliant producer, LOL. And I should say that LOL is not, in fact, left handed. So this is something at least somewhat notable. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, Mango, where do you want to start?
3: Yeah, and we've never faced a left-handed producer before, so I guess this is is a totally new thing. So um, I actually do want to stick with actual sports and talk about something I had always wondered about until this week, and that's whether or not home field advantage is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Like, does the location of a game factor into an athlete's
4: performance, or do teams play the same whether they're on their own turf or not? Well, it's kind of an age-old question, and if I had to guess, I'd say there's at least some truth to it. I mean, I know some sports leagues have regulations to ensure that playing fields are mostly the same from place to place, but there's still the psychological element of it all. Like, you have to figure players would be more at ease in the place that they're used to playing.
3: Yeah, I mean, they know where all the bathrooms are. They know right, the best course. places to get nachos. The, yeah. the way team's not going to know any of that. It, but, uh, yeah,
4: it's very true. I love that your conception of home field advantage is knowing where to find the, the tastiest snacks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you're right about uh, uh, home field advantage being a real thing. And, and a good deal of why that is does have to do with psychology. So first, I, I want to give a little bit of background. Um, there have been a bunch of studies into home field advantage over the years covering a wide variety of different sports. And the results have been shockingly consistent Like, the home team wins more games away than away teams. And not by a small margin, either. In 2010, a psychologist named Jeremy Jameson, put together a review of all the different home field advantage studies out there, and based on the combined data, he concluded that a home team will win roughly 60% of all its games,
4: its plays. That's actually a little bit higher than I, than I would have guessed. So what's actually fueling that advantage? Like you said, it has something to do with the psychology of the players? That's right. So part of it goes back to what you alluded to
3: earlier, like the players' familiarity with where they're playing, kind of feeling at ease in this environment. It, it tends to contribute a lot to the home field advantage. In fact, according to one study, if a team moves into a new home
4: stadium, it'll have a weaker home field advantage until the players get acclimated to the new space. Oh, that's interesting. So so you're feeling at home in your home field at some point. So what else is a factor? The
3: next one is something I, I know we can both relate to, and, and that's travel fatigue. Like, I don't travel as much as you do, but it can get pretty exhausting trying to mm-hmm. adjust to new cities and time yeah. zones and all the while taking meetings and missing home. But you know, imagine all of that, except in between flights, you play hours and hours of tackle football in right. front of like thousands of screaming fans, I can't like, imagine. jet lag suddenly becomes like a, a million times more tiring.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I do kind of want somebody to tackle you before our next meeting, just, <laughs> just to see for ourselves like what, what that I'm experience more is like. Yeah. That we got We got to live by example here. But all right. So you're saying there's a link between how far a team travels and how well they play against the home team competitors.
3: Yeah, it seems like the farther a team has to travel, the bigger the advantage for the home team. And the last factor at play kind of goes along with that travel component, because the other downside for the away team is that it can't bring its fan base along. Like a crowd's behavior has a major impact on how well the players perform. You and I know this from Mm -hmm. going to Duke and and having that whole advantage there. But, you know, at an away game, most of the people in the crowd will be rooting for the home team.
4: Yeah, yeah. And and that obviously gives the home team a little morale boost, but... I imagine it also deflates the away team. Like, it it can't be a great feeling to hear a stadium full of people cheering for the other guy. Or against you. But, you know, all, all the stuff we've mentioned, the crowd, the field, the
3: travel time, all of that factors into the psychological state of the players. And that positive mindset is really the biggest contributor to home field advantage. If all the players are feeling motivated and upbeat about the conditions of the game, that's likely to show up in their performance.
4: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, but I'm still wondering, like, if this advantage is the same from sport to sport. Like, I know you said that studies have looked at a wide range of different sports, but were some sports better for the home team than others, or was it always pretty much the same degree of advantage?
3: Yeah, so I I wondered about that too. And it seems like it really does vary depending on the sport. For example, there's a sports author named John Boas who took three years worth of win and loss data and he took it from four different pro leagues. So hockey, baseball, football, and basketball. Then he extrapolated how each of the different win counts would have been affected if the teams had played all of their games at home. So like no away games at all. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that the NHL teams and MLB teams would have experienced the smallest boost from the home field advantage of Mm -hmm. all the leagues. They would have won each a little shy of, uh, I guess, five and a half percent more games than they actually did, which is still nothing to sneeze at, particularly if you got money riding on those games. But the NFL teams would have seen the second biggest boost, about 6.4 percent. And then NBA teams would have seen the biggest boost by far. If they had played all of their games at home for a three-year period, they would have won 10 percent more games
4: than they actually do. Hmm. You know, I think about this in in football, I feel like it makes sense because You think about the intensity of the cheering when the offense is trying to call plays Mm -hmm. or whatever, like whatever they do in that scenario, right? (laughs) And it's hard for them to hear each other, and it seems like you could get them rattled. But do we know why the advantage would be so much greater for NBA teams?
3: Well, we don't, but I, I guess one of the things that Bo has pointed out was that the playing dimensions of a basketball court don't really vary like they do in other sports, such right. as baseball. Right. And and on top of that, like NBA games are all played inside, so weather is never a factor. Yep. So in other words, the hometown crowd and travel factors are still in play for NBA teams, but the environmental factor might not play as large a role in, in the players' mindsets as, as it does in baseball or, or even football.
4: Huh. All right. Well, believe it or not, home field advantage isn't the only kind of location-based benefit in the sports world. There's also something I was reading about this week called small town advantage. And Mm. the gist of this is that people who grew up in a small town, say like 50,000 people or under, they will have a higher chance of becoming a professional athlete than someone for a more populated city or town. This is something i would not seen before. And the numbers behind this are actually pretty remarkable. So there was this 2017 article in Pacific Standard that only about 25% of the U.S. population lives in a town with under 50,000 people. Yet despite that, nearly half of all NFL and PGA players are from towns that size. Hmm. And the same trend is present to a slightly lesser degree in other sports, too. I think it's like 40% of NHL players, somewhere around that same stat for uh, Major League Baseball players. Hmm come from towns fewer than 50,000. And for the NBA, I think it's uh, it's 28%. So pretty interesting. That's pretty crazy, especially since you think
3: the opposite would be true, right? Like the larger cities would have access to more equipment, maybe more competition, and and more opportunities for players to be discovered.
4: Yeah, I mean, the truth is it's tough to pinpoint why small towns make such great incubators for pro athletes. I mean, it, it could be there's something unique about the atmosphere of small towns that... Make it particularly conducive to athletic development, the close-knit community spirit, or the level of importance that rural areas tend to place on sports, maybe. But mm. whatever first got the trend rolling, it's kind of become a self-perpetuating cycle at this point.
3: Oh, what, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, small-town residents tend to know how many legends their areas have produced, like... Bo Jackson. I mean, how many times a day do I remind you that Bo Jackson came from the Birmingham area, right? You know, to Wayne Gretzky. And that makes the dream of making it to the big league seem all the more attainable for the next crop of players. And it is something that makes sense. So if somebody grew up in your neighborhood and you see them turn pro, then it stands the reason that maybe you could too.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I used to live in uh Greenville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and and Kinston was right next door. And the number of star basketball players and football players that have come out of huh. there is, is is pretty remarkable.
4: Yeah. Um But not Bo Jackson.
3: No, not Bo, or Wayne Gretzky. Right. But uh you, you know, th- there's one more sports advantage I wanted to talk about, and that's the fact that being short can actually give players a big advantage in soccer. Mm. It, it's it's funny what one of our friends kids learned from his doctor that he might be, you know, 6 foot or whatever like these projections, and he was totally depressed because he would (laughs) he was hoping he'd be like five seven like Messi or five eight which is just funny to think about especially for someone like me but uh you know it's kind of counterintuitive since bigger is usually better when it comes to sports but in the case of soccer being tall is only helpful if you're a defender or a goalie for the other positions like forwards and midfielders the edge goes to the shorter players so why is that the main reason is that shorter players tend to have better control of their limbs, which allows them to change direction faster than a tall player could. Uh, that kind of nimbleness really keeps defenders on their toes and and makes it harder to box in a short opponent or to anticipate their movements. Mm. But that's not the only advantage. You know, according to the Atlantic, studies have shown that tall players are called for fouls more frequently than shorter players. Huh. That could just be that the referees are associating height with aggression or or maybe the longer limbs are more visible. But you know i'm not sure exactly what the reason is but but tall folks definitely get carded more
4: yeah and and i know in other sports like basketball it's obviously an advantage overall to be tall but it is also interesting to watch, you know, when you used to watch guys like Shaq play, and they could just get hammered all day long and nobody would call a yeah. foul a lot of times. And but Iverson would pull someone down and get called for it. Yeah, exactly, it. <laughs> exactly. It's so bizarre to to look at these stats. But, you know, it's interesting to see how different levels of influence people can have uh, over these advantages. Like, with home field advantage, it, it kind of comes down to the player's mindset and how they respond to things outside their control. And with the small-town advantage, like... That's something people could actually seek out if they were so inclined. Like, if you had a young kid that wants to be a pro football player, you could move to a small town, and theoretically, they could reap the advantage of that. But now we're getting into stuff like height and the social stigma surrounding height, and those are things that nobody really has much say in, you know? Yeah, that seems like a good distinction to make. And and why don't we check out some of those
3: advantages right after this break?
4: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some of the lesser-known advantages that certain groups of people enjoy. And since we closed out the last segment with a short-person perk, I think it's only (laughs) fair we balance it out and go for for one for the tall people out there. So here we go. Tall people make more money than short people. That's it. End of story. (laughs) So
3: I hate this already, but I feel like you need to explain a little bit.
4: (laughs) Well, according to a 2015 study published in the Journal of Human Capital, Salary rates trend upward right along with height in most Western countries. So much so that if one employee is four or five inches taller than another, the taller person would make anywhere between nine and 15% more than the shorter person. Imagine being a seven footer (laughs) would be so rich. But put another way, an extra inch of height could be worth as much as $800 per year in additional earnings. Match that to inflation rates, track it over 30 years, and you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in extra income just for being tall. So
3: I guess setting aside the sheer injustice of this all, <laughs> I'm curious to hear what's driving this, because I, I feel like this would have made sense like centuries ago, right? right. When, when most of the jobs relied on size or strength right. or whatever. But it seems strange that the trend would continue in an era of like the desk job, right? But yeah. like maybe someone who's taller can reach the
4: high shelf in the break room or I something. Think that's, but, a, that's the know, advantage. Height doesn't really help with Excel sheets. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense on paper. And, you know, one theory is that employers aren't paying strictly based on height. Instead, it's that taller people are landing higher paying jobs because their height lends them to more self-confidence or better social skills, which allows them to climb the pay ladder faster. Anyway, if you're angling for a raise at work, Adding some lifts to your shoes might actually help. So think about that. <laughs> I'm sure
3: that's how uh, Tom Cruise got that like yeah. big payday, right? Get some lifts. So, so sticking with our theme of things that are beyond our control, here's another bombshell. I, I bet you never would have guessed. Uh, there are advantages to being attractive.
4: What? You don't say, Mango. <laughs> Come on.
3: So what's funny about this is that even scientists benefit from this. So according to new research from the University of Essex and the University of Cambridge, the way that a scientist looks affects the level of interest in their work hmm. and their perceived credibility. As one of the psychologists behind the study explained, this is true because, quote, people partly treat science communication as a form of
4: entertainment, where emotional impact and aesthetic appeal are desirable qualities. Wow. Wow. Like it's weird to think society might buy into an argument that the world is flat or some other ridiculous argument. Like if the scientist is is just attractive enough, <laughs> hey, it sounds a little like that
3: uh, Thirty Rock episode where John Hamm becomes a doctor and a tennis instructor, oh, right. and like he's horrible at all these things, yeah, but yeah. people keep giving him a pass because he's so handsome. But uh, I actually clarified this with Gabe because I was thinking the same thing you were, and the link here between attractiveness and credibility isn't quite what you were thinking. Mm. So over the course of six studies. Researchers were able to show that scientists who appear competent, moral, and attractive are more likely to garner interest in their work, which isn't a surprise, right? right? right. But then the researchers continued writing, quote, The scientists who appear competent and moral, but who are relatively unattractive,
4: create a stronger impression of doing high-quality research. So just to get this right, so the public is more likely to pay attention to the research of an attractive scientist, but less likely to believe what they're saying. Like, is that mm-hmm. right?
3: Yeah, they're basically like Cerno de Bergerac. Right. But uh, they basically, the next time the public needs to be informed about a scientific breakthrough, it's probably best to pair scientists uh, to huh. give a presentation, like an attractive one to right. win the audience's approval and, you know, an ugly one to give it credibility. Right. The old Watson and Crick. Which, oh, is that uh, what they
4: call it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I have no idea if one yeah. of them was good looking That's interesting, though. Well, Since we're on the subject of scientists, have you ever noticed how we tend to refer to the male ones by their surnames, but we call female scientists by their full names? Like, Darwin is just Darwin, but have you ever heard anyone just say Curie? Like, it's always Marie Curie, right?
3: I know, it's just making a joke about Watson and Crick, but, like, I know Rosalind Franklin's full name, but I I know one of them is James, but I don't know which one.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's actually even a name for this bias. It's called surname bias. So basically, when we hear someone called by their surname it tends to improve our perception of them. Maybe it makes them seem more important or dignified in our minds, maybe stronger or more eminent or something like that. But the main problem with this is that we don't wield that surname bias fairly. So according to a string of recent studies, on average and regardless of gender, people are twice as likely to refer to men by their surnames than they are women. And those findings hold true across you know, a lot of different professions, whether it's politics Science, literature, like the list goes on. So how exactly does this advantage play out in real life? Like what's the payoff for being just being called by your last name? All right. Well, just going back to the scientists for a minute, there was a study back in 2017 where more than 500 participants were asked to determine who among a group of scientists should receive a half million dollar science grant. Some of the scientists were referred to by their full names and others by their surnames. And as you can probably guess by what we've been saying, the Mm -hmm. participants showed a clear preference for the surname-only contenders. In fact, those candidates were a full 14% more likely to be recommended for the award. So if that same strange advantage is cropping up across all these different fields, it stands to reason that surname bias is a serious contributor to the gender inequality in the workplace. And the ironic part of this is that, you know, the trend of using women's full names actually may have started with noble intentions as a way of drawing attention to the presence and the contributions of women, especially in fields traditionally associated with men. Hmm. So the plan, though, it seems to have backfired since so many of us have this surname bias kind of baked into us. I
3: mean, that's a little depressing, but I'm glad we're more aware of it. And I I think I am only going to call Marie Curie Curie from now on. on. (laughs) But why don't we switch gears and talk about a few of the more even-handed advantages out there right after this break.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season... Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
1: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends.
3: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Okay, Will, so let's talk about advantages that are a little easier to come by, ones that aren't as dependent on chance or circumstances. Did you come across anything like that?
4: Yeah, I feel like I've got just the thing for you because all you (laughs) really need for this one is a library card. Now, being able to read and having access to books are obviously big advantages in life, especially during childhood. And hopefully it's clear by now that you and I are big proponents of reading. Mm-hmm. But according to new research, simply being around books might be a benefit in itself, even if you don't actually read them.
3: So my first question is, are you sure we're supposed to be talking about this? Because right. my kids listen to this program. Yeah, yeah, and, uh... yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> just, just, just sit near the books, Ruby. <laughs> but what's the advantage of uh, uh, having unread books around? There's something in social science called radiation effect. I think this is so interesting. So that's when children grow up with books in the house. They don't read them very much, but still somehow benefit later in life just from having grown up around books. It's a really weird phenomenon, but there's a study on it recently by a sociologist at the Australian National University. Her name is Joanna Sikora, and along with her colleagues, she pieced together five years' worth of developmental data on more than 160,000 adults from 31 different societies. These surveys were aimed at assessing things like literacy, competency with numbers, even technology. And part of this was asking the question of how large of a home library the participants had during their adolescence. Some of the findings from this were were actually pretty surprising. So for instance, the participants who only had a high school education, but who had grown up around books, they boasted better literacy, numeracy, and digital problem solving as adults than the college grads in the survey who had grown up in bookless homes.
3: Huh, that's interesting. And I'm guessing this all comes down to someone in the
4: house valuing knowledge or, or learning. Yeah, it ultimately comes down to why the books are in the house in the first place. So the lead researcher, Sakura, summed this up well in a recent interview with Scientific American. Here's what she said. If we grow up in a house, in a home where parents enjoy books, where books are given as birthday presents and cherished and valued... This is something that becomes part of our identity and gives us this lifelong incentive to be literacy-oriented, to always kind of steer toward books and read more than we would otherwise. That's fascinating. And, and honestly, I have so many books in our
3: house that we haven't read. I, I'm, I'm wondering if it's a good life hack for you know, not having to pay for my kid's college. So good strategy. On an opposite note, Gabe was telling me about Lucky Charms this week, and it's pretty much the opposite case, right? The advantage depends entirely on the charm holder's participation in it.
4: Wait, there, are you saying there really is some advantage to carrying a lucky charm? It
3: sounds impossible, but there's a social psychology study from about a decade ago where participants all performed better in memory and dexterity tests when they were allowed to keep their lucky charms with them. Hmm. And when the charms were taken away, their scores plummeted. And when the charms were returned, their scores increased again. So then what? It's like a placebo effect, but for luckiness
4: instead of health?
3: Yeah, sort of. I mean, the the researchers theorized that the people with lucky charms perform better because they stuck with the problems longer than those without charms. Ah. Because they believed in the luckiness of their objects, they felt more equipped and capable when faced with a tough challenge. And that confidence
4: ultimately boosted them over the top. Wow. You know, it's funny because there's this urge to like look sideways at people for putting so much faith in like a rabbit's Mm foot or whatever the lucky charm is. But I guess there must be some reason why they believe in an object's luck in the first place, right? Like, something must have convinced them. It's just hard to imagine exactly what that could be.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it helps to remember that what we think of as luck is really more about brain chemistry and worldviews than it is about, you know, chance or or magic. Like, our, our brains are hardwired to look for patterns, and we often have good incentive to find them. Like, even if they aren't really there... For example, I, 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 if I make a conscious choice to wear, I don't know, a shirt with a bear on it, and then I end up having a great day at work, there's a part of me that'll take notice of that and link the two events, mm-hmm. wearing the bear shirt and and then having a good day at the office, and and then if I wear the bear shirt a second time and have another great day at work, like that mental connection will become even stronger, and and I might think
4: there's something going on, and that shirt is lucky or whatever. You know, I know we talk about a lot of business ideas, mm-hmm. but like just hearing you talk about this, it kind of makes me think we need to get in the bear, bear shirt shirts, business. Yeah. I I think it's going to be our next thing. (laughs) But as bizarre as it all sounds, I have to admit, it's sort of comforting to think that there could actually be a way for us to kind of make our own luck like that. It it reminds me of something I read in The Atlantic this week about the social advantage that comes with having pockets, Mango.
3: Pocket? Like pant pockets? Yeah, yeah,
4: exactly. It turns out the word pocket is an Anglo-Norman word meaning little bag. (laughs) And when pockets first came on the scene in the late 17th century, that's essentially what they were, like these small detachable bags that were tied around the waist with a drawstring. And it wasn't until the 1850s when clothes became more tightly fitted that pockets started to be sewn directly into the garments. And this new kind of pocket was smaller than the old drawstring version, but it kind of made up for that by being so much harder to steal. Honestly, though, if you were a woman living during this time period, you wouldn't really care which kind of pockets you had, so long as you did have pockets. And that's because pockets were a game changer for women. Though it seems like such a small thing, but being able to easily and discreetly carry objects, you know, it is an advantage. But before pockets came along, that really wasn't much of an option for women. Now, remember, this is all prior to the rise of handbags and backpacks, and so suddenly women were able to move outside the home because now they had a private space to hold, you know, whatever they needed throughout the day.
3: That's funny. I, I never really thought of pockets as a
4: symbol of independence. But, yeah. you know, if you
3: can't have your wallet or phone or, or keys on you, like, you can't really move through, not like, public spaces.
4: Yeah, that's right. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, but... There's a great scene about pockets and the wind and the willows. Do you remember all the scenes from I've The Willows? I've never wind and the
3: heard you say pockets this much. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know.
4: It's when Mr. Toad is trying to escape from jail after being locked up, you know, for joyriding in his motor car. And he ends up disguising himself as the prison's washerwoman in order to slip past the guards. Oh, yeah. But he finds out that the stolen clothes he's wearing don't include pockets. And so listen to how he takes the news. To this horror, Toad recollected that he had left both coat and waistcoat behind him in his cell, all that makes life worth living, all that distinguishes the many-pocketed animal, the lord of creation, from the inferior one-pocketed or no-pocketed productions that hop or trip about permissively, unequipped for the real contest. (laughs) Pretty definitive right there. So uh, even Mr. Toad realized the freedom granted by pockets. And not just him. So back in the 19th century, you'd see posted advertisements for runaway slaves, and some of the descriptions would warn that just because his clothes have pockets, that doesn't mean he's a free man. So... I guess we should be grateful for Pockets is what I'm saying. I'm just going to keep <laughs> saying Pockets, but they give us this agency in public that was denied to so many people for a long, long time. Plus, where else are you going to keep your lucky charms,
3: right? That's so, true. Uh, you know, we started today's show talking about one-on-one competitions, and now it's time to close it by holding one of our own. It's time for the Fact oh. Off <laughs> Okay, so I came across a bunch of different advantages this week that all center on the sound of your voice and how it can influence the way people perceive you. So for example, men are more likely to vote for men who have deeper, more masculine voices, and and CEOs with deeper voices tend to manage larger companies and earn larger salaries. But there's at least one profession where it pays for men to be a little more soft-spoken. According to a study outlined in New Scientist, lawyers with gentler, less masculine voices are more likely to win in court than their gruffer, sounder colleagues. And the researchers behind the study aren't 100% sure why that is, but they say it could be that the lawyers with deeper voices are perceived as being overcompensating
4: or trying to sound masculine. Oh, that's interesting. All right, so here's a weird one. It turns out that die-hard opera fans have a slight edge when it comes to chemistry class. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite. So back in 2013, a team of chemists studied the librettos of 20 famous operas, and they found that the effects of 25 different natural and synthetic chemical materials were accurately described in them. Everything from snake venom to deadly nightshade. According to the Smithsonian, the researchers hope that teachers will use the poison-based plots to help the students better engage with chemistry. Because if there is one thing teens love more than chemistry, it's got to be opera. (laughs)
3: So we talked about left-handed advantages at the top of the show, but there's one more that's too random not to mention. According to a report commissioned by the AA driving school, left-handed drivers have a much easier time passing their driving test. In fact, six out of ten, or fifty-seven percent, actually uh, of the left-handers pass their driving test on the first try, according to the findings. And that means southpaws are a full ten percent more likely than right-handers to pass on their first attempt. And as Annie Culver points out for ABC News, that puts left-handed drivers in good company with famous lefty drivers, including Buzz Aldrin and none other than Chewbacca
4: himself, who, (laughs) you know, was also left-handed. That's right. All right, well, here's one I was kind of surprised to learn, actually. Color blindness can sometimes be an asset in combat situations. The idea is that the condition forces a soldier to focus on patterns instead of colors which can be useful for spotting camouflaged enemies in the field. So much so, in fact, that colorblind units were reportedly used during World War II to help identify snipers. That's fascinating. So
3: uh, here's a fun one. It, It turns out that women are more attracted to men if they're holding guitars.
4: Which is why someone taught the house course in college called Just enough guitar to serenade a girl.
3: (laughs) That's right. I I think the whole thing led up to playing that song Tangerine by Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, let let, let me tell you about the study because it's interesting. A, A team of researchers in France hired this beefcake guy. And over the course of a single afternoon, they had him hit on 300 women between the ages of 18 and 22. And in each case, the guy followed the same routine, right? Beat for beat, he introduced himself. He told the woman, like, I think you're really pretty. And then he proceeded to ask each one for her phone number. So you know, they could get a drink together. Mm-hmm. But here's the twist. For a third of these encounters, the guy was carrying a guitar case. For another third, he was carrying a gym bag. And for the remaining third, he wasn't carrying anything. And wouldn't you know it, when he was carrying the guitar case, a shocking 32% of the women gave him uh, their numbers. Wow. Compare that with 9% who did when he was carrying the gym bag and uh,
4: 14% when he was carrying nothing. And it's pretty clear that music is the language of love. That's wild, though. Like 32% to 14%. It's not just like a small advantage. It's a huge advantage. Advantage. And nine percent with the, the gym bag because I, I think like they just think he's a meathead or something. Wow. That's yeah. pretty well. Well it may not be the most surprising fact of the day, but you managed to breathe a little romance into the show. And for that alone, <laughs> I think you gotta take the show Mango. <laughs> well played. Thanks so much. And I, I accept this on behalf of everyone who's faked playing
3: a musical instrument to get a date. But uh, <laughs> that that's gonna do it for today's part-time genius from Will Gabe Lowell and myself. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.
4: Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.